you can be you can believe something and not yet realize its full implication. That's my point. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can hold something to be true, but it hasn't yet dawned on you. So he knows he's intellectually, he knows, yeah, I'm a sinful guy, but suddenly in the presence of Jesus, now what does he know? Well, what's the opposite of a man? Deity. He has just had an epiphany that he realizes, hey, this guy isn't just a cool teacher. And in fact, Messiah is cool too, but I'm sort of standing in the presence of what? The embodiment of what I read in synagogue school, the holiness of God. And when he has that experience, he realizes for the first time, what about himself? I am not worthy to be in this person's presence. Now, that's the difference between intellectual Bible knowledge and epiphanies mediated into you by the Holy Spirit. And I want to say before Zev comes and talks about the cool second part, is until you and I get to that place where we realize that we are never going to close the infinite gap between where we're at and where Christ is, that is the dawning of one of the great doctrines of the Presbyterian Church, and that is what, Pastor Dave? <laughs> I would lay it down almost like, and I don't like axioms too much, but I'm going to lay one down today. It's an axiom. Your personal and my personal understanding of grace is proportionate to the degree that you have been shown your own sinfulness. Because when you don't realize how sinful you are, grace is sort of like, ah, well, you know. But when you get shown exactly how sinful you are, like in the sight of Jesus, then what happens is that you know what? I need Jesus. But see, Peter's not there yet. Because at this point, his focus is on what? We got to get away. Now, here's where the dawning of grace and our sinfulness then t gets turned into a beautiful story. So, Zev, come on and finish it up for us. Well, I wasn't completely sure exactly where John was going with that. However, <laughs> where he left it certainly puts me having to go to one of the greatest epiphanies in the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's one that, you know, is, it's frequently um, read at ordination ceremonies as the Old Testament uh, lesson. Um, it concerns a call of a prophet for whom the concept of the holiness of God was absolutely supreme. Anybody know who I'm talking about? 
He uses the term for God, the Holy One of Israel, some 29 times. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Okay, it's Isaiah. (laughs) And of course, what I'm talking about is his epiphany and his call to be a prophet because I don't think there is any passage in Scripture that really socks it to you quite like this one. Okay, looking at Isaiah chapter 6. And I do want to do a little background. First of all, one thing you need to know about Isaiah is that what class, what rank in Jewish society did he have? Anybody know? What group did he belong to? Before he was a prophet, he was a priest. He was a priest. And therefore, talk about somebody who was, you know, living out Leviticus. He was one of those people who was there in the temple on regular duty engaged in all these atoning sacrifices for people and called upon from time to time to go into the holy place before the veil and offer incense on the golden incense altar. This is a scary thing because uh, two of the very first priests, two sons of Abraham, once Uh, decided they were going to offer some incense that hadn't been commanded and they were probably a little bit tipsy at the time and what happened to them? Nadab and Avihu. They were consumed by fire. God accepted their incense in a very dramatic way. (laughs) So, I mean, this was not an easy thing to do. And this is where this vision takes place. It also takes place at a particular time. Okay, in the very first verse, in the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, they're in mourning for the death of the king. This is a time of transition. This is a time of uncertainty. Okay, and what happened? You can imagine, this is, picture this scene. He's there, he's already pretty much in a state of awe at what he's doing. He's standing before the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, where only the high priest goes once a year. And he's getting, he's offering incense on this incense altar, and it's as if the entire physical setting dissolves. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six. Now, the word seraphim is an interesting term for an angel because it comes from a Hebrew word meaning burning. These are fire beings, if you will. Okay? Now, what was above the altar... I mean, what was above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies? Anybody know? 
cherubim, keruvim. This is an even higher rank of angel than the cherubim. Okay. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, and here is the passage. You just absolutely have to really open yourself to hearing what this is saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is said in every, you know, uh, when they have a, a gathering in the synagogue and they say the 18 benedictions and the repetition, they have the Kedushah, the sanctification part of that service. This is said. This is chanted. Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzavaot, Melochol Haaretz Kevodo. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, when you want to emphasize something in the Hebrew language, how do you do that? You repeat it. You repeat it. So, for example, when God in Deuteronomy wants to really emphasize what the children of Israel are to pursue, he says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdov, justice, justice shall you seek, shall you pursue. It's repeated twice when he wanted to specify that the penalty for a particular sin was really serious. It was mot yumat, dying they shall die. Now, how many attributes of God get this triple treatment? What? Only one. one. This is the only time you have this threefold repetition of the same word, particularly as an attribute of God. Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. What Isaiah suddenly realized is he was face to face with God, and what was being revealed to him is that the number one, absolute, primary, and unbounded attribute of God is holiness. Now, what does the term holy mean? Kadosh. Anybody? Don't be shy. Without sin. sin. In other words, absolute purity. What else? Exalted. Exalted. Perfect. Perfect. Who said that? (laughs) Thank you. Set apart. Totally different. Okay. That is the basic root meaning of the Hebrew word kadosh. Set apart. Not like you and me. Absolutely not like any creatures. And at the same time, infinite purity. Okay. You know, we we love as Christians to talk about God is love. And that's true. The problem is we have a tendency to have sentimentalized the concept of love. 
You know, it's, it's sort of, you know, we, we, you know, we've really debased it. Yes, God is love. But nowhere does it say God is love, love, love. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. But it does say God is holy, holy, holy. So if God is love, it's a holy love. Another way of putting that, I love the saying of George MacDonald, um, who was the mentor of C.S. Lewis, where he talks about love being inexorable. Nothing is inexorable but love. Love which will yield to prayer is imperfect and poor. Nor is it then the love that yields, but its alloy. For love loves unto purity. Love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds. Where loveliness is incomplete and love cannot love its fill of loving, it spends itself to make more lovely that it may be perfected, not in itself, but in the object. Therefore, all that is not beautiful in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind, must be destroyed. And our God is a consuming fire. Again, what kind of angels are these? Seraphim. Seraphim. Angels of burning fire. So what is... You know, and the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called in the house was filled with smoke. And I said, what was Isaiah's reaction? Woe is me, for I am, and I love the, 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 the old King James thing, I am undone. I have just, you know, it's as if he totally comes apart. And woe is actually a formula of cursing. It doesn't just mean like, you know, you know, Jews would say, oi. <laughs> and that's the Hebrew word here, hoy. Oi. Oi vey, I buttered the bagel with the meat knife. <laughs> no, but... Oy, woe to you. And here he's pronouncing it not on someone else, but on himself. Woe to me, for I am undone. And why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Unclean lips? What did we learn last week about the most godly or godlike characteristic that we human beings have? What is that? Speech, language. Impurity of language is not just a matter of potty mouth and poor upbringing. <laughs> it is a debasement of the image of God in which we are created. This is a serious matter. You know, we sometimes forget that um, uh, profanity used to be against the law 
In uh, Richard Baxter's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, you know what he basically said was his absolute worst sin? Was profanity. Was profanity. And we tend to have lost that. You know, we no longer have anything left for special occasions because we use profanity on so, so often. Now, what's the consequence? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, you got to, man, you got to picture this. Okay. He took that burning coal from the altar. This is an angel of burning fire, and he's taking a coal from the altar, and he has to use tongs. So that gives you some idea of just how hot that coal was. And what does he touch with that coal? Isaiah's lips. You know, your lips are the most sensitive, probably the most sensitive part of your body, especially to temperature. You know, it's interesting. One of the things, the discussions I once had with my spouse is, what do you do on a hot day and you need to cool off? Counterintuitively, you don't drink cold beverages because not only does the cold beverage cool the core of your body, but when cold hits your lips, that's telling your brain it's cold out. So take that blood away from the skin surface and send it into the core of your body, and the result is you don't get rid of the heat. You don't get rid of the heat. Instead, you drink a hot beverage, because what does that tell your body? It tells your body, man, it's hot out. Get that blood up to the skin and start sweating the heat away. Okay? So the most sensitive part, and it's touched by a burning coal. And the angel says to him, Behold, this has touched your mouth, your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, Peter hasn't had that experience yet. Peter hasn't had that experience yet. But something is about to happen to Peter that is about to happen to Isaiah. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. This is the guy who just said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He got his lips burned. <laughs> That's what happens when you make excuses to God. And now what is he saying? I'm ready to go. Send me. And what does Jesus say to Peter after they've enclosed this huge shoal of fish and he says depart from me for I am a sinful man what does Jesus tell him from now on what ah from now on you'll be and, and I love it John sent the word to me I looked it up in the Greek myself too you will be catching human beings alive you will be catching human beings alive 
the word, you know, contains the word zoe, which means not just biological life, bios, but full life. You will be catching people alive and giving them the gift of life. And, you know, I do have to disagree one, one, one detail. You know, they didn't put their nets up. When they got to shore, you got to picture this. These are professional fishermen. They've got boats. They've got nets. They've got this huge shoal of fish. James and John have their father Zebedee there. And what do they do? They leave everything. These are people who probably had a subsistence existence. And they've just gotten the catch of their lives. And they leave that catch sitting there totally unsorted in these nets. And they walk away from it. They absolutely walk away from everything they've known, everything that they've been before, and they follow Jesus. And they follow Jesus. Because now they really know who he is. And now they also know what they're supposed to be doing in their lives. Now, for me, this has a certain personal point of view. Um, how many people here do fishing, actually do fish? Okay. Now, I didn't do any fishing when I was growing up in Colorado. I didn't learn to fish then. I mean, occasionally maybe we'd go to a pond with kitty reels and stuff like that. But, um, and even when I went to college, at Carleton College in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes and the fisherman's paradise, I still didn't learn to fish. But after I had gone to Israel and come back, uh, my father had caught in the bug of fishing from a, uh, an employee of his who was prob taller and a good deal broader than I am, and of course whose nickname was Tiny. And Tiny had taught him to fish, and he'd gotten enthusiastic, so Dad couldn't wait to get me. And so I remember we were out fishing, probably, I think, near Aspen, somewhere on the western slope. And I can remember this very clearly. We were fishing with lures, trout fishing in lakes, in ponds. And we were in this, at this one lake, and I was using a lure called a silver minnow. And I cast it out there, and bang, I got a hit, and I pulled in a 10-inch cutthroat trout. And let me tell you, that has, I mean, the, uh, cutthroat is beautiful meat. It's almost pink like a salmon. And from that day forth, any time I went fishing with my dad, I didn't care where it was or what the fish were biting on, a silver minnow was the first thing I always cast. Okay, and when we got back there, Dad said to, to Tiny, I hooked a really big one up there. He said, yeah, he says, it's about six foot five because I was hooked. Now, what really kind of brought this home to me in terms of what it really meant for my life was in my first year in seminary. Um, I did my first year in seminary at Iowa School of Theology in Denver. It uh, is a Methodist school, but, you know, I was living in Denver. It was in Denver. And so, you know, I, I discerned I was really being called to become an Episcopal priest. And I started my studies there, 
And I think it was spring quarter, and I know I had a, a, it was, I had finished with classes, you know, by early afternoon, and I had some kind of church thing at my home parish that evening. And so I went home to take a nap, which is also something I really learned to do in Israel. I mean, let me tell you, my first time in Israel, my first afternoon, friends of my parents had picked me up at Lod Airport, brought me to their apartment in Tel Aviv and said, now in the afternoon, everybody here takes a nap. He says, I never sleep during the daytime. I went out cold for two hours, never missed an afternoon nap any time for the rest of my time in Israel, five years, okay? So I was taking a nap. I have no idea what I was dreaming. But into the middle of my dream, there came a voice of command. Totally unrelated to what I was dreaming, I know. And it was a voice of command. It said exactly one word, one syllable. And when I say a voice of command, it was like a shout in my ear. And the voice said, fish! Now, I, I swear to God, I, my memory is, it's like my body elevated horizontally at least a foot off the bed, translated to vertical, and I landed on my feet. But I certainly did jump out of bed because I understood exactly what he was, he was saying to me, the same thing he said to Peter. Become a fisher of men and women. And that's why from that very time, evangelism has been very dear to me as one of the major aspects of my ministry. And so I, I know that God has called me to be an evangelist. Now what do we mean by an evangelist? An evangel- I, I think the best definition of evangelism I've ever heard, I went to a conference in 95 as a representative of my diocese to a global conference on dynamic evangelism for the Anglican Communion, the Worldwide Anglican Communion. Lots of great speakers, great singing, wonderful. I mean, it was just a fabulous time. Got to meet people from all over the world involved in evangelism ministries. And one of the speakers, Bishop Yang Ping Chung of the Diocese of Sabah in Indonesia, said, primary evangelism is every person touched by Jesus, sharing Jesus, so that others may make a life with Jesus. It's every person touched by Jesus, sharing Jesus, so that others may make a life with Jesus. Well, my life wasn't just touched by Jesus, it was grabbed. But guess what? I am a firm believer, even as one who knows he's been called to be an evangelist, that first of all, evangelism is too important to be left to the evangelists. It's also too important, certainly, to be left to the evangelicals. Evangelism is the job of each and every one of us. Now, there is not a person here in this room who has not been touched by Jesus. And the proof of that is you're here, aren't you? Every one of you, your lives have been touched by Jesus. I'm sure that every one of you has had some kind of epiphany 
in which you came to understand who Jesus was and what this meant for your life. Now, when we discover a magnificent restaurant or some magnificent home cooking, okay, we don't hesitate to recommend it to people. Oh, you got to try going there to eat. The food is so good. When we've read a really good book, we recommend it to our friends. Oh, you really need to read this book. It was so moving. It was so entertaining. I just, it was a page turner. I couldn't put it down. I was up all night reading it. Why, when we have the greatest experience that a human being can have of being touched by Jesus, are we so silent? And we don't share that with people. What? There are all kinds of excuses. But remember what happened to Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got news for you. There are a million excuses. There are all kinds of excuses we can come up with. But the fact of the matter is, maybe in more subtle ways, God has said to each and every one of us, fish. Fish. Now, the key thing is, there are certain things you got to do, obviously. Number one, you have to pray. Because ultimately, evangelism is not your work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. I have never converted a single person in my life. I've never changed another person's life. It's the Holy Spirit that has done that, and hopefully I serve more as an instrument than an obstacle. So you've got to pray for the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, to really bless that. Second, you've got to cultivate your relationships. Okay? Because, you know, one of the other excuses we have, well, I don't know any unchurched people. Well, let me just say two things. Number one, you probably do. And number two, just because somebody attends church, does that mean they're a Christian? You know, I hate to put it that way, but it's true. I mean, a lot of us grew up in the 50s, right? And what was the king? Word, you know, worship at the church or synagogue of your choice this week. It was the thing to do. And that's why we couldn't build churches fast enough because they kept filled up because people filled the churches for what reason? It was the expected thing. Not necessarily because they had really been grasped by the power of the Holy One. So cultivate those relationships and pray that God will open the door and above all, listen. This morning, uh, Krista Tippett's On Being was um, very good. It was an icon of the um, civil rights movement and her whole thing, the question is, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? And that's really 
the key thing that you gotta be able to do, is get next to somebody and get close enough to them that you can ask them, where does it hurt? What's your pain? And then you can apply the greatest medicine that the world knows. Any questions or comments? Yeah. They were living in the communities. Mm -hmm. Jesus was walking around. He was teaching, preaching, talking, yeah. day in and day out. He, I'm sure he had seen Peter. He had seen the fishing. I think yeah. that he saw in Peter, that's my man. I've seen him in the community. Mm -hmm. we, get, we have such a small, pretty part of Jesus and what he said and what yes. he did. So I well, like to take it up a little broader term of the times. <laughs> anyway, it just seems like uh, he had seen Peter before and he had yeah. said, that's my man. Well, again, yeah, he had seen Peter before. He knew Peter. I mean, what did we see last week at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry? He gets, you know, Andrew brings Simon his brother, and Jesus gives us the name Peter. And this incident that we talk about this week by the Sea of Galilee takes place later. He's been walking around. He's been following Jesus. He knows this is a great teacher. But now he has the epiphany. Now he has the epiphany. And at this particular point, he's probably thinking, what did I sign up for? Oh my God, I am face to face with the embodiment of the Holy One of Israel. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And does Jesus pay any attention to him? No. And that's the way it is with all our excuses. All right then, <clears throat> thank you so much for coming. Uh, those of you who are going on the church, you'll be wanting to go. Those of you who are uh, intensely scholarly would like to know that next week we will study Matthew 16 and 17. So if you would like to uh, read ahead, Matthew 16, 17, another big event in Peter's life, and it'll have relevance to ours, too. So God bless you. I'll see you and next week. one other thing. I do have a statement that I drew up of a personal testimony of how I came and came back to, Jew to Christianity. And I have some copies up here. If you're interested, please feel free to take one. All right, bye-bye, have a nice day.